welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. Uh, if you want to grab one, those are always available. We think the Bible is pretty important in this whole deal, so figure you should probably make them available. So there they are. Uh, my name's Micah, if we haven't met. I am uh, really excited about this morning. So are you ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Um, we're in a series called Eat This Book. We're probably halfway through if you are new. We have started in the beginning of the Bible, creation, uh, Genesis, uh, chapter 12 comes along. Abraham is given a promise. The nation of Israel is birthed. From there, we move to Exodus, where we find the people of God in exile in Egypt. And, of course, Moses is sent to uh, Egypt, brings them out of exile, out of, uh, out of Egypt, into the land that God promises them, uh, where they sort of have some problems going back and forth between obedience, disobedience, where we get this period of judges. About 12 of them are sent to Israel. Here's what it looks like to live in faithfulness to Yahweh. And so back and forth they go, uh, to the point where they find that they, the neighbors around them have got uh, the newest Corvette and whatever. Well, they actually have kings, and so they want a king. Israel, God says, no, you don't need a king. Samuel, through or God says through Samuel, you don't need a king, but they keep insisting. So Certainly they get kings, and we studied Saul and the beginning of the kingdoms, and then the dividing of the kingdoms um, a couple weeks ago with Solomon and his sons after that. And then last week we talked about the prophets. So that's where we are this week, kind of that progression. I'm hoping by the end of this, if you get nothing else, you can say all of that, right? Because we do it every week. So if you're wondering, like, gosh, again? Yes, again, again, and again, and again, and again. I was once told that vision leaks, right? doesn't matter how many times you say it. It just leak. We leak. Um, so... The prophets, Elijah last week, we've got Isaiah this week, we have people like uh, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, my favorite, Micah, thank you very much, <laughs> Amos, Obadiah, and others. So I want to start, who are the prophets? Like, what are these guys' role? What do they do in Israel? And, and, and I'm, I, I'd like to call them like covenant watchdogs. So Israel makes a covenant, they make a, a pact, they make this promise to God to be faithful to Yahweh, and Yahweh will be faithful to them. And the prophets are people who come along and sort of watch over Israel's relationship with Yahweh. Are they living into that? Are they living up to that? Are they uh, being faithful to this relationship that they have? And often the answer is no. And so the, the, the prophets speak on behalf of Yahweh. Uh, so during the period, oh, oh yeah, the prophets, they really, they, they, they are found during the period of the kings and the kingdoms, right? So 1057 or so is when Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And 587 is when Israel gets taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Most of the prophets we find in the scriptures are in that period of time. Isaiah specifically mentions two kings, and so we know exactly where he's writing. He mentions Uzziah and King Hezekiah, 767 to 687. So we're latter end of the prophets, latter end of the kings and the kingdoms. And Isaiah is Israel's most famous prophet. He's the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament. I had a prof tell me once, if I had one book in the Old Testament that I got in order to help understand the New Testament, it's Isaiah, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So this book is, uh, Jesus quotes it the most, Paul quotes it the most, it's very, very important. Um, and really, what I find so fascinating about the book of Isaiah, it's long, it's 66 books, but the entire narrative of the scriptures is found in Isaiah. So here's what I want to do today. I want to like give you an overview, and I'm going to you know, break it up into a couple of big blocks, so that if you were to tackle this book, which I would recommend, 
recommend. It's, uh, it's brilliant. But if you were, you'd be able to sort of navigate the, the different movements in it. And then I want to explore the idea of imagination and what part imagination plays in following Jesus. I would submit to you that it's very, very, very important. So I want to kind of t- toss that around. So here's Isaiah in about five minutes or less. Are you ready? Buckle up because this is going to be good. Well, I can't t- promise you that. It's a lot of information to take in. So here we go. Let's see that slide up there if you would. And I am stealing this from my good friend. His name's Tim Mackey. He was a pastor in Madison. He's in Portland now. Uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. He's actually a, he has a PhD in Hebrew scholars or Hebrew studies. So he's pretty smart. Um, so here's the deal. First section of Isaiah, it opens um, chapters 1 to 12, and it's really just a rant a, a, against Israel. The prophet basically just opens up, uh, you know, uh, and, and sort of tells Israel all the ways that they have fallen short of their covenantal expectations and covenantal living. Things like neglecting the poor, social and economic injustice, spiritual um, idolatry and spiritual harlotry. They have given themselves to other gods. And so in the midst of the first section here, we find these couple of chapters which sort of like bing on, on, in, in this section. The first is in chapter 2, Isaiah reminds Israel of this grand plan, this big huge plan of God in and through the nation of Israel. And the, and the key part is that God would bring salvation salvation and justice to the world through Israel. So it's this remember Abraham, remember the covenant in chapter 2. And it's this kind of poetic vision of what what the world would look like if that were to happen. Chapters 9 and 11, we get the first introduction of this individual that becomes known as this Messiah King. So if, you, if, you, if you've been to any Christmas Eve services and they've quoted from the book of Isaiah, most likely it's chapter 9. And this is the first kind of reference to this one Messiah King individual who will come and sort of be a part of this whole God bringing salvation and justice to the nations. Section 2 kind of opens up, and if it's Israel in section 1, the prophet turns his attention to the nations. All the neighboring nations around, he just takes them one at a time. Babylon, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, and essentially does the same thing that he does to Israel in the first section. All of the ways that there is injustice and oppression and social and economic things that are amiss, neglecting of the poor and all of these different things. Throughout chapter, or the the second section there, which is chapters 13 to 27, the prophet always, it's sprinkled with these little sort of um, reminders of this Messiah King who will, who will come and restore justice or bring justice and bring salvation to the nations, to the world. Section 3, it's like Israel, nations, and then it's just back to Israel again. Isaiah has got an axe to grind. Anybody listen to talk radio? No? Okay. It's, it's like a total rant, you know, and he takes it, if it's, pre, if it's pretty intense here, he like ratchets it up a step in chapters uh, 28 to 35, this third section, and it's just more about Israel's... Uh, idolatry and social and economic injustice and all these things that that should be a part of Israel's life together that isn't. And here's the thing, in section 3, there's this constant presence of repent, turn around, you're going this way, go this way, and salvation and forgiveness and restoration and shalom will come to you. And yet, we know because we're looking back that this doesn't happen. And it's like the, the prophet is saying, please, if th- turn around, go in a different direction because this road leads to exile. And uh, in chapters 36 to 39, we get this break in the book where it moves from a poetic kind of retelling or prophecy to a narrative. And it's the only part of Isaiah that's narrative. 
And it's the story of King Hezekiah and basically God's deliverance of the people of Israel from the Assyrians. So it's like Assyria's coming and they're delivered and everyone's thinking as you're reading the book like, oh, maybe this is it. God's been saying, repent, repent. Like, go a different direction and maybe this is it. Like, now now Shalom's coming. Now justice is coming. And then in chapter 39, uh, uh, Hezekiah makes a deal with the Babylonians, which, I mean, anytime you make a deal with the Babylonians, you're sunk, right? (laughs) So Isaiah makes no uncertain, he makes no uncertain terms. This is not a good idea. And, and inevitably, they, they end up exactly where Isaiah says they will. Chapter 39 and, verse, and chapter 40, there's a long section of historical time that passes because they're taken away into exile. In fact, Isaiah even says, he says, Time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors, um, all that they've stored up to this day, will be carried off to Babylon. He goes on to say that your sons will become eunuchs in the court of Babylon. Not a good idea. Not a good day when your sons end up there. Uh, <coughs> The interesting thing is, 1 to 39, it's like they're looking at exile. It's something out in front of them. And then immediately in chapter 40, it switches and it says, comfort, comfort my people, right? This classic passage from from Isaiah that that Israel has paid their time, their debt has been paid, their service is done. And exile is in the rearview mirror now. So the prophet moves on. And this is probably the most, um, I think, compelling and beautiful part of Isaiah. It's this next section where we get introduced to chapters 49, 40, or 42, 49, 53, 61. They're called the four suffering servant or servant passages of Isaiah. And it's here that we get introduced to, more in full, the promises of chapters 9 and 11 in Isaiah. That this individual Messiah king will come and bring justice and bring salvation to the nations. At the beginning, it's a little unclear. Is it Israel that will serve? on behalf and then it becomes more clear in the the following four or three that it's actually not Israel but that's it's it's an individual Jesus of course in Luke chapter 4 if you don't know the story he's in the temple he picks up the scroll of Isaiah and what chapter does he decide to read Isaiah 61 the first four verses he says the spirit of the Lord is on me has anointed me to preach good news to the poor that the slaves will be set free the captives the, the blind will see the he picks up do you see what's happening here Essentially what Jesus does is he takes this idea, this servant, and the crazy part of Isaiah is that this servant is not going to bring justice and salvation to the world through some sort of economic and sort of like military defeat. No, actually this crazy idea that this person will suffer and will die on behalf of Israel and their sin and on behalf of the world and their sin and that somehow God will bring justice and salvation through death. And so Jesus essentially picks up 61 of Isaiah. He reads it and says, you're looking at it. He takes Israel's role upon himself to be the suffering servant for the world. And that through Jesus, justice and salvation will come to the nations. It's brilliant. 65 and 66 end with this, this beautiful poetic picture of what Isaiah calls the new heavens and the new earth. New creation. That if in fact this is going to happen that this is what the world would look like. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. Chapter 35. I want to just read uh, chapter 35 because this is where I want to focus this morning. It's this picture. It's essentially what happens in 65 and 66. It's this sort of futuristic picture of what could be. It says this. The desert and the land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear 
for your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs and the haunts where the jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. Evidently, those are good things. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness and it will be for those who walk on it. Or walk that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those who the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Pray with me as we dive into this passage. God, as we look at your scriptures, I pray, God, that you would, like Isaiah, who presents a picture of a new future, a new reality, a different world than the one we live in, one where there is justice, one where there is not violence, one where there is enough to eat and to drink, one where there is abundance. God, would you give us eyes to see that and give us the heart and the courage to pursue it, we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Okay, friends, here's where I want to shift gears. Isaiah is as much a picture of the reality of Israel's world as it is a vision of a new world. It's as much a mirror that that Isaiah holds up in front of Israel as much as it is the, the voice and the imagination of Isaiah and therefore Yahweh about what the world could be. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 55, and others hold out this possibility that the world that you see and experience day to day doesn't actually have to be this way. And in fact, it makes the bold and audacious claim that this is not what the world will look like, but rather it looks like this. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 55, where there is enough, where you come and you buy food and drink, though you have no money, uh, the places where the, the, out of the desert, the, the springs will burst forth. The crocus. I love the crocus flower. This crocus, man, they don't know, they don't know anything about winter. No. As soon as it's warm out, the crocus are like, bam, I'm out of here. I love the crocus. Every spring, they, they surprise me, you know, and it's like, yes, yes, things are alive. That's what I see when I think, that's what I think when I see a crocus. And who doesn't want to live in Crocus Hill, right? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Uh, okay, so my, my, my kids and I, we have been reading the Chronicles of Narnia lately. I've mentioned this before. And this has become uh, so much fun, so much fun. Uh, nobody taught us how to do this thing, you know, like how to be parents or dads or whatever. I mean, you have to take classes to take, get a driver's license. I think you should take classes to do that whole deal. You know, making the babies and raising them. All in the class. <laughs> Use a little more on that. So... We stumbled on this one, totally stumbled on it. We're like, you know, we, maybe we ought to read something. I mean, I've heard reading's good for kids. Like, we should read something before bed. Like, all right, great, let's do it. So we, f- we picked up C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, classic, Chronicles of Narnia. So we've been reading this lately, and uh, uh, I'm going to let you in on a little bit of my life. And I, but just a little bit, though, because it's mine, and this particular is mine, and I love it. But I want to let you in um, on it just a tad. So every night... Right, we get the kids to bed. They're all upstairs in the same room together, uh, of the upstairs bedroom. And I mean, if you rem- if you have kids, you remember this. You know, you like you just get them down and tucked in, and then they're like, "Oh, I have to go to the bathroom," or "Oh, I have to get my blanket," or "Oh, I have to get a pen to what?" Nobody knows. 
but I have to do something. And so, you know, you get them down, and then inevitably, this is what happens. I sit down, we turn off the lights, I got my phone, I got C.S. Lewis right here, and Lyndon gets out of bed again, and she comes up to me, and she's like, Dad, Dad, like I've never heard this before, okay? Dad, if there's a picture, you have to show me. Okay, sweetheart, I will. And she scampers back into her bed and lays down. So one night, I was like, whoa, almost went over. One night, I said, Hadley, do you want me to show you the pictures? And she goes, no. (laughs) Cheapers. So I said, why? And she goes, they ruined the pictures in my head. Brilliant, right? From the mouths of babes. They ruined the pictures in my head. Today I want to explore the power of imagination. And I want to submit to you the idea that imagination is absolutely essential in our spiritual formation and what does it mean to, and the and, and the question of what does it mean to follow Jesus that our imagination plays a very active and real role in that process um, I, Albert Einstein says imagination is more important than knowledge he says knowledge is limited right it's, it has a static idea it's limited but imagination encircles the world. So on a brain level, this is a total hack job here, but this is what's happening in our brains when our imagination is active. Um, here's essentially how this, or, or parts of how this works. Our imagination is the ability to form new images, sensations, and realities that are not perceived by our sight, hearing, or other senses. So we see the world, right? We perceive the world, and there's this data. It's set. It's static, so to speak. Knowledge, or imagination, is the ability to take those things that we see and perceive and actually continue the conversation or enter the story or create new possibilities. So imagination, it's this experimental kind of part of our brains that we use to develop new theories and ideas uh, that aren't, or, but it's always rooted in, it's always based on what we perceive, what we taste, what we see, what we, the data that we're taking in. So the ability, any, any progress that we make is, is largely connected to our ability to imagine a different tomorrow or a different product or a different future or a different relationship or a different car. It's all connected to our ability to imagine something that's not in the real, but that's out in front of us. You tracking so far? So imagination plays a huge role in, in like, uh, the learning process. And, and scholar, uh, studies will say that the more that we use our imagination, the stronger it becomes. And the less we use our imagination, the weaker it gets. Here's what I want to do. I want to offer two definitions of, of, of two words that I think are going to be crucial as we kind of move forward. Uh, these are my take on what's actually the definition of the words and a little tweaking and a little massaging so that it kind of heads us down this direction. I don't feel like it's betraying the originals, but you should know it. They're not like, you're not going to find this in the dictionary. Knowledge, for us this morning, I want to say knowledge is the interpretation of the data. Knowledge is the perception of our world, our reality. It's what's there. And like Einstein said, in some ways it's static. Imagination is the capacity or the ability 
to take the process or the processing of the data and experience and creating new possibilities and new stories. Or it's the taking of the data and actually living our lives out, the creating of new possibilities. Maybe you could say it this way. Knowledge are the colors that we have on our palette. Right? Have you ever watched a painter? Right? They start with a, a number of colors. Knowledge is the colors we have to paint with. Imagination is the taking of those colors and creating a life with it. Like the actual living out of whatever we perceive, it's that next step. Why is imagination so important? If I'm making this, if I want to you know, submit to you that imagination is critical in spiritual formation and what it means to follow Jesus, why? Why is that important? Here's some interesting information I found as I studied this a little bit further. Number one, imagination is important because of the role that it plays in poverty might strike you as surprising, but poverty, where things are, uh, where there is a diminished capacity, or where, and remember, poverty is not just the, the lack of money. We talked about this a couple, maybe a year and a half ago, we did a series called One Thing. Out of that came the garden, we were thinking about hunger, and that was our kind of one thing. The garden came of that, the Garlow relationship has come from that. As we were talking about that, we I think we, we began to learn that poverty is not just the lack of money, but there's all kinds of Im- impoverished places and people, spiritual, economic, social, uh, all kinds. But what you find, what are the effects of poverty? What are the common denominators of poverty? When you begin to ask people who work in these settings daily, what you find is that the inability to imagine, and in this case, the inability to imagine a tomorrow that's different than today. Like, the capacity to imagine or think about a world that's different from the one that I'm living right now, right here, day to day. Often, when you find people who are impoverished, that ability is lacking or minimal. Uh, I was, again, doing some reading and research this week, and I found this, this blog of this mom, and she tells this story that I was just struck by, and I wanted to share it with you. She, her and her husband foster children, so they've had a number of kids who have been a part of their family. And she tells this one story of her and her husband who had this just knock-down, drag-out argument, disagreement, fight, right? And they're just going for it, like going after one another. And somehow didn't realize that one of their foster children was actually like seeing all of this play out. And as the mom sort of recounted and um, sort of uh, processed the experience with the young boy, he just could not believe that this event that he witnessed didn't end in violence or someone leaving. The palette of colors, so to speak, did not hold within them the possibility of someone not getting hurt or leaving. Toff actually just had a meeting with the principal at Garlow a couple, a couple days ago, a week ago or so, and said, what, what are the challenges that these students face? And she said, this is going to sound really weird. And it was just totally ironic. She says, a lot of our kids are come from free and, they, they're on free and reduced lunches. Over 70% of the kids that go to Garlow Um, So come from very economically impoverished situations. And she said, we ask our teachers to, to do this exercise with them. And it's one where they read a story and the one, what's the word I'm looking for? Assignment for the children is ask a question about the story. 
They can't do it. They literally can't imagine. They can't participate. They can't hear a story and take it one step further. Like their imagination has been so underused that they can't ask a question. They can't, here's the thing, they can't enter the story world to be able to like see where it might go or ask a question about it. If knowledge is the interpretation of the data and imagination is the process of taking the data and writing or doing something with it, is it any wonder, is it any wonder that when we find people who are in impoverished situations that their ability or that where the palate is filled with darkness and violence and oppression and you know relational chaos and beating one another up is it any wonder that often they have a very difficult time writing a story that's any less or any more compelling than what they have to choose from does that make sense if all you hear and the only reality that you perceive is death violence relational chaos people leaving beating one another up then is it any wonder that what you end up painting, so to speak, looks a bit like that? And here's, here's why I say all this. I don't say all this to make us feel guilty, but what I want to challenge us is if we say, if we believe in the God, in the Jesus who represents the God of Isaiah 35, are you tracking? If that's the God that we're connected to by Jesus and through the Spirit, then can is it possible that when you show up when you're just present, that you bring to the table all kinds of new colors for people. This is what forgiveness looks like. This is what love looks like. This is what it looks like to be unconditionally loved. This is what it looks like to begin with the assumption that you are worthy of love and belonging. This is what hope looks like. And I'm not saying like, you know, some sort of savior complex, like here come all the Jesus people, we've got what you're looking for. It's not what I'm saying. But if we believe and if we're connected to the God of Isaiah 35, then when you show up, I would suggest and submit that the possibility of offering new colors for people to paint with is on the table. And friends, that's good news. Amen? We talk about this word all the time here. It's missional. Does anybody have no idea what that word means? Or, 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 or does anybody wonder, what does that really mean? No? You all get it? Totally crystal clear. A couple of you. Toff mentioned it with, with life groups. I want to suggest that this idea of imagination is critical in this idea of missional living. Here's why. Here, let me define it first. If I'm going to say it, and here's what I'm talking about. Missional living means to spend your life in response to the invitation to partner in the ongoing work of God in the world. If we begin with an assumption that God is at work in the world, sending Israel, sending Jesus, sending the Spirit, sending the church, all for what? For the restoration of God's good world. And now we're a part of the church. If we begin with that assumption that God is at work in the world by the Spirit, then the question becomes, the question that becomes very important is, where is God at work in the world and how do I get involved? Right? So to be missional is to understand this process. God sends Jesus, or, or Israel, this, uh, Jesus, the Spirit, now the church of which I'm a part. To understand that and then to be actively participating, spending my life for those means, for that goal, in that direction. Now, I'll be totally honest with you. For the first couple years of this church, um, Awaken has been asking that question on behalf of this community. What is God doing uh, in our neighborhood? What's God at work? What's he up to? What, and how do we get involved? This is how the garden came about. This is how Garlow came about. 
And here's what I've come to find out. It sticks when it comes from you. Right, you've all heard, you know, you give a, you teach a, you give a man a fish, feed him for a day. If you teach him how to fish, feed him for a lifetime. I think we implicitly assume that this is what the church does. That we say on behalf of this community, where's God at work in the world, and then, okay, everybody, let's go do that. My hope and my prayer for you, and I don't do New Year's resolutions, but this is like my theme this year that I keep coming back to that God is impressing on my heart. My hope and my prayer for this community and for you is that you don't need me. Because when you're dependent on me, then it's my imagination. It's Ben's, it's Toff's, it's the leadership's imagination for this community as to where God is at work in the world. And quite honestly, that's bad theology. (laughs) If the Spirit of God is in you, then you've been given something. You've been invested with something that to be missional, to be on mission, means that for you, you begin to ask, where is God at work in my world and how do I get involved? And my hope and my prayer is that this becomes more normative. And as you do your life groups, that you don't need the garden, that something becomes alive and birthed in you. And that you as a group, you sense, yes, God is in this because you have an imagination that's active and working enough to where you look around and you see the world and you see something that could be Isaiah 35 and you begin to focus your life and energy and effort and resources to that goal so that it becomes an imaginative act to action to a reality in the world. That's what we're talking about. So, here's how I want to end this. I said I wanted to let you in on a little bit of my life with, whole, with Narnia. And uh, the Vikings are over. They're done. So just settle in here. Um, I would like to read uh, a portion of Narnia for you. And here's why. I've been, I've, I'm going back and forth all week on this. Um, I think often our imagination is not like enticed. It's not engaged. And so just for the sake of... like giving you some space to just let your mind wander. When I read this the first time, I barely got through it. It was so beautiful, so amazing. And then I want to give you just a few moments to think about this question. Where is God at work in my world? That's going to take your imagination. And how do I get involved? And then we'll participate in communion together. So I'm going to ask uh, Eric to bring down the lights. And um, I'm I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Because if you don't, you'll see what's in front of you. I want you to see what you hear. And I want you to give like free access, freedom to really, really listen to what's being said. Not quite that dark. I can't see my notes. There we go. Perfect. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It was very far away, and Diggory found it hard to decide from what direction it was coming. Sometimes it seemed to come from all directions at once, and sometimes he almost thought it was coming out of the earth beneath them. Its lower notes were deep enough to, the voice, to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful he could hardly bear it. And then two wonders happened at the same moment. 
One was that the voice was suddenly joined by other voices, more voices than you could possibly count. They were in harmony with it, but far higher up on the scale, cold, tingling, silvery voices. The second wonder was that the blackness overhead all at once was blazing with stars. They didn't come out gently one by one as they do on a summer evening. One moment there had been nothing but darkness and the next moment a thousand, thousand points of light leaped out. Single stars, constellations, planets, brighter and bigger than any in our world. There were no clouds. The new stars and the new voices began exactly the same time. If you had seen it and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were now singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. The voice on the earth was now louder and more triumphant, but the voices in the sky, after singing loudly with it for a time, began to get fainter. And now something else was happening. Far away, Down near the horizon, the sky began to turn gray. A light wind, very fresh, began to stir. The sky in that one place grew slowly and steadily paler. You could see shapes of hills standing up dark against it. All the time, the voice went on singing. There was soon light enough for them to see one another's faces. The cabbie and the children opened their mouths in shining eyes. They were drinking in the sound, and they looked as if it reminded them of something. The eastern sky changed from white to pink, from pink to gold, and the voice, it rose and rose until all the air was shaking with it. Just as it swelled to the mightiest and most glorious sound it had yet produced, the sun arose. You could imagine that it laughed with joy as it came up. As its beams shot across the land, the travelers could see for the first time what sort of place they were in. It was a valley through which a broad and swift river ran flowing eastward toward the sun. Southward there were mountains, northward there were hills, but it was a valley of mere earth, rock, and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass. The earth was of many colors. They were fresh and hot and vivid. They made you feel excited until you saw the singer himself, and then you forgot everything else. It was a lion, huge, shaggy, and bright, It stood facing the rising sun, and its mouth was wide open in song. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle, rippling music. As he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave, and in a few minutes it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains making the young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass, and soon there were other things besides grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley, and the forest appeared from the ground. And now for the first time, the lion was silent. He was going to and fro among the animals, and every now and again he would walk up to two of them, always two, and touch their, touch their noses with his. He would touch two beavers among all the beavers, two leopards among all the leopards, one stag and one deer among all the deer, and leave the rest. Some sorts of animals he passed over altogether, but the pairs which he had touched instantly left their own kinds and followed him. At last he stood still, and all the creatures whom he had touched came and stood in a wide circle around him. For the first time that day, there was complete silence except for the noise of running water. 
Diggory's heart beat wildly. He knew that something very solemn was going to be done, and the lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all of the beasts in the wind as it sways a line of trees. Far overhead from beyond the veil of the blue sky which hid them, the stars sang again, a pure, a cold, difficult music. And then there came a swift flash of fire, either from the sky or from the lion itself, and every drop of blood in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake. Love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. Maybe as your imagination is engaged, I just encourage you to think, where is God at work in this beautiful, beautiful world, and how do I get involved? Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.